I was working at Bloomberg. I was covering the big tobacco trials, and I kind of became obsessed with the idea that somebody could make a product that kills people, get up and lie about it, and then go home and sleep at night. You know, at first as a journalist, I was interested in getting at trying to understand that and write about it, which I was never able to do. And when I first started in fiction, I really wanted to explore that. And I thought maybe I could explore it um, in fiction. So that was an idea percolating in the back of my mind. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have author Mark Willen. As a journalist, he developed his passion for writing while working for such notable outlets as National Public Radio, Bloomberg News, and Congressional Quarterly. His new novel, Hawk's Discovery, is due to be released on September 5th by Penn L Publishing. He is also the current treasurer for the Maryland Writers Association. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. You're the second uh, executive board member that we've had on the show. We had Eileen McIntyre a few months ago, and she was lovely. So we're happy to have another big hitter back on the show for it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, I'm, and I... Prior to the podcast, you had sent me um, a little, kind of a, a kind of an early release of of Hawk's Discovery, which one as soon as I started reading it, I found that it was one of those books that it it I just was sort of pulled right into the story, and I just was really in, I was really enthralled with your writing style. I just was like, I was like twenty pages in, and I was like, whoa, I just. It just went so quickly, and I just wanted to kind of back up for a moment, and this is part of a trilogy. Well, I wouldn't call it a trilogy. There is, it is the third book that I've written where, with Jonas Hawk as the principal character, but each book is meant to, to stand on its own. Um, to be honest, when I wrote the first one, I had no intention of writing any more about him. Um, but it was my publisher who kind of encouraged me to do that. Um, and of course, publishers love series because the idea is people will, if they get to like one, they'll buy the others. Right, so, yeah. so they they push that. Um, and it, writing a series is, is both interesting and problematical. In some ways, it's, it's easy because you kind of really get to know your characters. Um, in other ways, it, it can be difficult to keep it straight. Um, and I, I know when I wrote the second one, I would find myself, you know, I'd be talking about a character and I couldn't remember, did she have red hair or brown hair? You have to look it back book. up, yeah. <laughs> I right. had to keep going back. Um, and then I had agreed to a, a, a tight formula, a tight schedule for the third book. So I was writing the third book while they were editing the second book and they would be sending it back to me and I could not remember some of the minor side plots and incidents was the, did that happen in this book or that so it it has that dilemma too oh, sure <laughs> so i i used to read a lot i i mean I, i'm not saying that i i have refused to read them i just haven't read any recently but i read a lot of those kind of serialized there were uh there was a series of books that all had the word prey in them like p-r-e-y yeah john sanford john sanford right yes. so there's john sanford and there's uh patterson james patterson and yeah and what you what you get to know if you when you when you read these books is uh, and I want to ask you about if you did this with yours is a lot of times they'll do what I like to think of as like expositional shorthand 
It's like, okay, if you've read all the other books, you you know where this character is coming from. But since it's supposed to stand alone, I've got to bring everybody up to speed on the last three books in a paragraph. Like, and and there was that time where he shot that mass murderer and then dragged him to jail. And now that's what he re- that's what he reminded him of when he was shooting this mass murderer and dragging him to jail. It, it's a real problem. Yeah, um, because you have to kind of because you don't want to do that. You don't want to stop and bore the reader <laughs> who read the first book. Um, and but you you need some of that background information. If if it's not really a serial, sometimes it's not. I like to think of it as that I I have things in the book as the characters develop that if somebody's read the first book, they're going to get a little more out of the second right. book. It's their reward. But the person reading just the second book won't, won't be lost. Uh, I think a lot of it is relational things too. Like, um, again, thinking of, oh, oh, the other one I used to read was the Burglar books. And I can't think of uh, the Burglar in the library, the Burglar at... <laughs> You know what I mean? There was. I I've heard you think, talk about this before. Yeah, and 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 it was a similar thing. It was like he had this neighbor who was a recurring character, and you know, it, that's my crazy neighbor lady from upstairs with the three cats, or or whatever. You know, just just a a quick like, as a as a long time reader, you've seen this character develop, so you know her. But as a new reader, you have to be introduced to her and get again just broad strokes of okay, crazy right. cat lady neighbor from upstairs, got it. I've got to say, I know what she looks like. You know, I know, I know, I know enough about her that what she says when I open the door isn't going to surprise me as a new reader and it's not going to bore, you know, uh, long time readers. Right. And in, for me, it was a challenge because my main character, Jonas Hawk, in the first book, he's 73 years old. Um, and like all of us, his, who he is was shaped by events some very tragic and some very upbeat of his earlier life. And, and they help explain how, why he does the things he does. So they, those things you do have to work into each book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can be a challenge, but it's, you do get to feel like, you know, the characters and, um, and it, like, it's also, I'll tell you one thing in the first book, Jonas is, is married and, the second book takes place two years later and his wife has died. And um, if somebody reads the second book first, they're going to know that Emma dies. Right, yeah. And, you know, at the same time, you know, I went to a book group discussion of of a club that had read the first book and they were very angry at me that, why did you kill Emma? (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, you love that kind of thing because it means they associate it, they connect it to the character in some way. I wonder, can you use that as a catching up mechanism? Like when you're talking about the transition from the dead wife to uh, from the live wife to the dead wife, you can say, well, this is kind of how I coped. Is that? Yes. Or you do it through other characters talking about him or um, having him visit the cemetery or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And his two grown children are key characters in all the books so it, it also comes up through them ah. so and now i read in the notes that uh you've stated that you felt this particular this new novel that's coming out drew more on your journalism background and also it kind of features a very heavy political scandal and you know jonas's son who's now got to figure out what to do with this information five weeks before an election and i just wanted to talk a little bit about how you felt you worked those elements in 
you know, I did that and I did it consciously. I think when I first started writing, you know, I wanted to, well, when I first started writing this series, I mean, I, I had tried writing many times in my life and been less than successful. And it really wasn't until rather late in life I decided I really wanted to do this and I went back to school and I got a master's degree in creative writing the year that I retired. Um, and I, you know, I didn't want it to be autobiographical. So I kind of intentionally stayed away from the things I knew mm. to the extent I could. But then I just, you know, I, I tried writing another book at one point. It was all journalism. And my writing group, they really loved it. And they said it was so good to get behind the scenes. So I said, I'm being stupid. Why not take advantage right. of what I have? And the setting here is Jonas, this is a small town in Vermont, uh, Beacon Junction. It's a fictional town. Um, and Jonas is, you know, he's retired. He's become kind of the unofficial sage of the town. Um, people go to him for advice. Um, the Perhaps the defining moment in his life came when he was in his mid-50s and his son was, a 20-year-old son was killed in a car accident. Um, and he fell into, he became an alcoholic and a few other things happened. And he's felt guilty at, at having deserted his children emotionally. He didn't physically desert them, but, right. but, but he was out of it. And one of the things he did was he, for his daughter, he bought this bed and breakfast, which she runs and they all live at. And for his son, he, he bought the town newspaper, which is a little weekly small town newspaper. So the book opens with his son getting this anonymous tip, um, suggesting that the leading candidate for governor did something wrong in her past when she was a state prosecutor. Um, and the son, you know, is eager to run with this. He wants to make his mark and move on to something bigger. And it turns out that in the, this case, somebody's been arrested. I, I tell you a little bit about the plot because this is all in the first chapter anyway. Um, there's been a murder, and someone's been arrested for that murder. Um, and Nathan, the son, gets this tip that says, um, this is really all... Marsha Bennett's fault. She's the candidate. Um, he says, what do you mean it's her fault? And he says, well, eight years ago when she was a state prosecutor, this guy was accused of a sexual assault and she let him go. And, um, you know, she knew he shouldn't, you know, have been let go. And Nathan says at the end of it, well, why are you telling me this? I just, why don't you call the AP or some big... Right. And, and he says, because... You're Jonas Hawk's son, and it turns out Jonas was the defense attorney for this guy. And then, so so Nathan wants to run with the story, and Jonas is really afraid that he's he's going to jump the gun. There's no evidence; it's not clear what she did, and he, and so he gets into a lot of the journalism ethical issues of right to privacy. You know, how well do you have to verify something? Um, and I, I all, all my books, I like to center them on an ethical dilemma. Yeah. Um, I've been interested in ethics for a long time, and, and I've just kind of come to that as, as kind of the central point. But I always like to pick something where the answer is not very clear at all, and where when the book ends, people can disagree on what was the right thing to do. Yeah. 
I've, I've recently had, so also a journalist also have this like burning, burning anger about it. Like, you know, just, just because those are the rules. And, um, so my brother's a policeman just because I'm about to say some nasty things about policemen. And like, you know, if the, if the police lie, they try to cover it up, you know, and if like the clergy lies, they try to cover it up. The politician lies, they try to cover it up. A journalist makes a mistake and says, oh, I was wrong. And then it's like, oh, well, you can't ever trust a journalist again because they, because they made this one mistake. And that's what you're thinking about every time you want to write something that's, that's complex or you're not 100% comfortable with it. You're like, this is my whole reputation rides on am I doing the right thing here? Or am I just so excited that this is such an awesome story that I want to get it out there? Yes. And, and as someone who, who was in journalism for 40 plus years and, and saw it change so much right. from, I mean, I first started in 1969 and, you know, well before cable news ever existed. And, and just seeing how much, the pressure on the internet, of course, didn't exist then, and and the you know the the need for speed and to get out in front and the the pressure. I'm I'm really kind of glad I'm out of it. Yeah, um, speed kills. I believe I read in your bio that you taught journalism ethics. I I did, and it, it's a strange thing. I actually, um, well, there were a couple of things that that went on and went into the first book when. I was working at Bloomberg. I was covering the big tobacco trials in the 1990s. Um, And I kind of became obsessed with the idea that somebody could make a product that kills people, get up and lie about it, and then go home and sleep at night. And I, you know, at first as a journalist, I was interested in getting at trying to understand that and write about it, which I was never able to do. And when I first started in fiction, I really wanted to explore that. And I thought maybe I could explore it um, in fiction. So that was an idea percolating in the back of my mind. And then I reached, there was another point in my career when the newspaper I was working for folded. Um, And so I was out of a job, basically. Um, But I had a a decent severance package and somebody I knew at American University said as long as you're not doing anything why don't you come and teach a course in journalism ethics and I said okay (laughs) (laughs) and I never I never went to journalism school I never studied ethics Um, but you know I sat down and started reading Kant and all those guys and getting into it and really enjoyed it and, and became interested in it. Eventually, I actually started a blog called TalkingEthics.com, uh, which uh, is still alive, although I haven't I haven't written anything for it for three years, but people somehow still find these things. Um, so I was kind of interested in, in ethics. And when I wrote the first book, um, there were two things that came together. One, when I had started graduate school, I created this you know, as part of an exercise that created Jonas Hawk as a character. But I was also still interested in this idea of company executives who, who make products to kill people. Um, and I found a way to kind of bring them together. And the, the plot in the first book involves the, the main um, economic engine of Beacon Junction is a medical device maker, and they were making a heart stent that um, was faulty. Um, 
so that was that was the initial dilemma. Now I've, I eventually found that it was making it kind of a black and white kills people and these right, people yeah. are covering up was boring. Sure. Uh, and it, sure. So I started to kind of gray it around the edges, and I made it so that um, yes, the company realizes they have problems with this device. Um, but they come up with what they're sure is a fix for it. And, you know, and they think it's the best, that the stent is really better than any other stent on the market. So they change it and continue to operate it. But this is, that's an illegal thing to do. You're supposed to inform the FDA you've got this problem. Okay. They don't want to do that because it's their only money-making product and it'll mean taking it off the market and running through more tests and they figure the company will go under. So they say, we fixed the problem. Nobody's being hurt. Why make an issue of this? And the town, which doesn't want to lose the jobs and the engine, the economic engine of this company, you know, doesn't want that to happen either. And Jonas gets in the middle of kind of working out what should be done. And I, I really tried to I didn't want the CEO of the company initially in the first draft. He was just this evil person, and that was no fun at all. So I wanted to make it someone who was who was troubled by this but thought he was doing the right thing. Um, and that, that just kind of led me to uh, those kind of dilemmas. Um, well, those are always great characters and also always great dilemmas where you don't you don't know whether the person knows that they're kidding themselves or not. Right, you've got this sense that maybe they're. I think they really believe this, but I also think that maybe they're wrong, and they think that they're. They and th that's the question: Do they think that they're genuinely right, or can they live with maybe not being a hundred percent right? And that that's a much more interesting character yeah. than you know, Doctor Evil. Yeah, I, I like. I mean, I like to think of it as trying to put good people in a tough situation where they they're trying to do the right thing. Um, but they don't necessarily agree on what that right thing is. And, and at the end, it's up to the reader to kind of decide. Yeah. Right. And I certainly think that with this new novel that you have coming out, the political scandal component certainly feels very timely, you know, in today's environment, you know, and, and there are, and, and I can see how, you know, five weeks before an election, you know, Nathan's got this the hot potato that's landed in his lap and you know he's sort of like what do i do and you know here's dear old dad you know coming in to try to figure out how to how to navigate that but that's certainly you know when i was reading the first bit i was like man this feels really this feels really timely <laughs> <laughs> yes i i was in some ways i've been lucky with the timeliness of things and in the second book which was written like three years ago before the Me Too movement, um, the ethical dilemma involves Jonas's partner um, had died and a foundation had been created in his name and Jonas is kind of running it. And it helps foster children make that transition out of foster care into adulthood. And one of the girls in the program accuses one of the people working for the program of improper sexual advances and it's clearly a he said she said kind of thing mm -hmm. um and it turns out neither of them is very reliable or 
And so the question is, is what do you do? You don't want to take a chance of having somebody um, untrustworthy dealing with youth. Right. But you don't want to, you know, ruin the career of somebody who may be innocent. And so that's the dilemma. And it it just kind of hit when the Me Too was was breaking. Right. Well, the, the, the difficulty increasingly is that, and just... I'll speak for myself, but just as a white guy, I have to know that I have a white guy bias and turning that off is always like, that's, that's always the first switch I go to, you know, I've always the first switch I go to is, all right, well, how much, how much do you have invested in this? You know what I mean? And then, so as, as each of your readers is a different person, they get to turn on or turn off their switches in a different way and saying, well, this is how I feel but how much is my bias influencing how I feel about it? And I love the idea of being able to engage with a book personally instead of just enjoying it kind of like passively. Yeah, I think there's something kind of just kind of tag along with that. I think that one of the things we've all, we've, you and I have talked about is non, Tony and I are predominantly nonfiction writers. And as a journalist, you're predominantly a nonfiction person but then to be able to say I have all these thoughts I have all these sort of characters these kind of scenarios in the back of my mind fiction becomes kind of that perfect outlet um but for me the switch is very hard to move from nonfiction into fiction was it hard for you to to move from that very fact-based journalism mind you know over to I get to make it all up and run with it this way. Is that was that I, hard for you, I or was found it, it a very freeing experience? All yeah. of a sudden, I could make it up as I went along, and um, I um, it, it wasn't hard. I, you know, I, I always enjoyed writing, and the, for the first fifteen twenty years of of my career, I was a reporter, and and I was quite happy writing newspaper stories and radio stories. Um, and then, you know, what always happens in life is you get promoted, you know, and you, you feel you have to, you know, more money. And so I became an editor. Um, and that was, that's rewarding too. I don't mean to denigrate that. Um, but I really found that I missed writing. I mean, I missed that creative outlet. Um, and at the time I was in this, this lousy phase of reading all these detective stories ad nauseum. <laughs> um, and I was thinking that these are terrible. I could write better than this. So it, it really kind of happened. My first attempt, and this, this we're talking a long time ago, um, was spur of the moment. I, it was, I was working at Congressional Quarterly, and this is like in the late 80s when um, we're just making the conversion in, in, at this company anyway from, you know, typewriters and word processors to everything by computer. They didn't do that on the Eastern Shore until 2003. Don't worry about it. (laughs) 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 And one day the system went down like around three o'clock in the afternoon and and um, we could we could create documents, but we couldn't have access. And as an editor, so there was nothing I could do. And basically everybody went home, but I was meeting somebody in town for dinner that night. So I found myself with two or three hours with nothing to do. So I said, all right, I'll give this a try. And I just sat down and started typing off the top of my head. 
and I wrote like 12 pages, you know, creating this detective who was very much like me, of course. Um, and it was so much fun that I just kept going. And within a few months, I had, you know, a 70,000 word draft. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> but it was done. <laughs> it was done. And I yeah. threw it away. And of course, <clears throat> I had no plan whatsoever. I, I didn't know till I got to that word what was going to happen next, which is not the way to write a detective story, especially a detective story. Um, so I said, all right, I'll plan the next one out. And I wrote it out, and I wrote another book, um, which I thought was better and worked. And I sent it around, and I actually, an agent in New York at a fairly you know, a legitimate firm took it on and I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to be a great, you know, in the next whatever. Um, and she sent it out and it, it was rejected by, I think, six places. Um, and she sent me the rejection notices and they were very short and one, and they were inconsistent. Um, and she said, sorry, but, you know, I'm going to let you go. Um, and I said, okay, I gave it a shot, you know, now back to the day job and I'll forget mm. about writing. But I found that there was something in me that, that still wanted to write. And, you know, every couple of years I'd, I'd start another novel. I get about 50 pages and get stuck and stick it in the drawer. I've got an attic full of the first 50 pages of novels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, um, at the ripe old age of 58, I decided I really want to do this, but I need some help. Um, and I enrolled in a master's program in creative writing, a kind where you can work and take one course at a time. Right, yeah. And um, I got my degree when I retired, and um, I wrote the, the first draft of my first book in that course. I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful teacher and mentor and I did a, um, a term of independent study in which I submitted that draft to her on the first day, and we revised it the whole term. What a developmental editor, a good developmental editor does. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I had a similar experience when um, when I was at Washington College um, working t on the Sophie Kerr Prize. You know, you work sort of one-on-one -on -one with, um, at that point, it was one of my professors. And, you know, once a week we were sort of, kind of sitting down hashing out you know we'd I'd turn something in we'd rip it all to pieces and I really found that mentor relationship to be so valuable um Tony and I have often discussed we're not really critique group people but there are people who I have found in that sort of mentor type relationship or just another writer that I really, really trust their eyes. I trust their respect. I trust their work. I know, I know their style. And so I've, I really sort of, I kind of connect with that in, in the sense of that men, it's so valuable when you have somebody and you can, the two of you can sit down and really construct, deconstruct, reconstruct, you know? It is, but it's so important to have the right person, too. It is. I mean, some critique yes. groups. I mean, the workshops in graduate school used to be, in some ways, awful because... I could not imagine. <laughs> I was sitting here. I didn't want to be the one to say it, but I'm like, I would die first. <laughs> <laughs> because it's almost like people feel they're being graded on how critical they are. Yeah. So, I mean, I had 
There's always one. So in, in my experience, there's always one, usually a girl in the class who's the best editor and you want to be sitting next to her because she's going to give you like legitimate feedback. And then there's all the other people who want to show you just how well they can tear your stuff apart. And you're yeah. like, no, no, I want the one who wants to show what a great editor they are. I don't want to, I don't want to sit next to the one who's a, who wants to show what a great critiquer they are. And I've been in a lot of, you know, afterwards in critique groups, and I know you guys have as well. And and they're very useful too, although yes. I, sometimes if you're in the same group for too long, it's like I'm writing something and I know what each one is going to say about yeah. it. And that's usually the point I know it's time, you know, to take a break and maybe get a different critique group because so much of this is subjective. It really is. I mean, you know, you get a person who's on commas or you get a person who's on you know everybody's kind of got a different thing that they're coming at and what i have found sometimes in critique groups is that you turn something in and if there's four people in the critique group they're telling you to go in four different directions and i'm like wow i feel worse than when i came yeah. in you know i don't i don't need that kind of negativity in my life <laughs> um so just just real quick so how did you um so I was briefly involved with the with the Maryland Writers Association. I wasn't able to maintain my 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 involvement. I'm a member. Um, and how did how did you how did you get and in, stay involved? I actually when after I when I retired, I was um, and I just finished graduate school, um, and I was kind of casting about the the problem with being retired and not going to an office. You can get a little isolated. Being a writer can be very isolating. So I was looking for ways to avoid that. And the Maryland Writers Association had a teen writing club program, which I, you know, instantly became interested in. Um, and my vision of it was you'd get all these bright high school writers and you'd be leading a critique group. Um, and I, I started one of those clubs um, and found it immensely rewarding and eventually became coordinator of the program. And we now have, I think, 12 clubs in four counties. Um, it's been very successful. Um, and so that was my main involvement. Um, and then I have some background in accounting and tax issues, um, not really professional, but Anyway, I, so I was on the board by by dint of the Teen Writers Club, and the treasurer resigned, and there was no treasurer for like almost a year, and they needed help. Yeah. So <laughs> you got to the meeting late and found that you I were in stepped charge. into that role. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's it's a real it's been a great organization for us um, here in yeah, Berlin. Absolutely. We have the Lower Eastern Shore chapter, and um, you know it was one of those things where there was a group of active writers down here in Worcester County, Wicomico County, Somerset County, um, but there was really nothing. There, there wasn't there, there wasn't a there place were, for there, us. And as we were saying, there are plenty of pr critique groups, but there weren't. Like we don't we don't have a critique group in our we just meet and hang drink, out and then <laughs> drink wine and go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um you know and so we reached out to the maryland writers association and we said well where's maybe there's a chapter we just don't know about and the nearest one was in annapolis and so i wrote and i said hey you know we'd love to 
have a chapter, what do we have to do? And, you know, you guys were very helpful in saying here, here's what you need to get established. And, um, you know, we've been very happy to, you know, and we've been very happy that you did it because the, the group is too concentrated in the Baltimore, Annapolis, Columbia, Montgomery County area. Mm. So, um, we'd really like to spread out a little more. I would love to have a teen writers club in this area. I know you guys do a lot with high schools and yeah we're getting ready to we've we've kind of gone into some of the local high schools and and done some talks Mm -hmm. and things like that and so i think that's something that we would we're actually looking at you know now that the new school year is kicking off to see about what we can do locally with that but um i also wanted to mention we have our our big uh writers conference it's we've we've announced some things there yes we have um they were way ahead of schedule um the, the Writers' Conference, we do one every year. It's a lot of fun and very educational. This year, it's uh, going to be March 29th through the 31st. Um, unfortunately, it's again up in the Baltimore area at BWI Airport at the Marriott. But we're going to try for the first time. It's going to be all weekend. We have two great keynoters, um, Chuck Zambuccini, Chino, who's um, long time wrote the um, the guide to literary agents for Writers Digest, is going to be one of our keynoters. She's going to give a a seminar on Friday afternoon on everything you need to know to get an agent. You know how to approach them, what they are interested in, and then we will have ten agents there, and he will moderate a panel Saturday and give a keynote on Saturday. And then the Friday night keynoter is Crystal Wilkinson, um, who's an award-winning feminist, poet, novelist, memorialist, and you know she teaches at uh, Indian Creek, Kentucky, um, award-winning writer, and she's going to give the keynote Friday and a seminar on Sunday morning. Um, as I understand it, it, it'll be basically how to use the experiences in your life as a springboard to fiction rather than as a mirror to fiction. Um, So I think that'll be very interesting. And then all day Saturday we'll have a bunch of workshops on all different kinds of subjects. So it'll be very exciting. Yeah, we've had um, uh, Frank Hopkins, who's in our writers group here on the Lower, at the Lower Shore chapter. He attended last year and said it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, I didn't get to go last year, but I hope maybe this year I'll get a chance to get up there and go. And that's, he- in, that's in March, and it said um, MarylandWriters.org. Is that where the information yes. is? Yes, MarylandWriters.org. Um, and there's a, registration will open later in September, um, certainly by the end of the month, but we're already starting. We're just putting the final touches on the web page for that, but it's already up there and with some basic information. Yeah, it's a very, very top-notch thing. Frank was raving about it. And if you made Frank happy, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> that's a goodbye, Frank. That's a goodbye, Frank. All right, Stephanie. Now this is the part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming and being on the podcast. It was really my pleasure. I enjoyed it a lot. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.